Humans of Gaming podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Richard Clark, and I'm here with Drew Dixon, our editor-in-chief. Hey Drew. Hey, how's it going? Uh, good. Um, every week we invite a special guest in to the podcast to talk with us about life, games, and belief, and this week we're super happy to be joined by the brainy gamer himself, Michael Abbott. Um, Michael, how's it going? It's going great. Awesome. How are you guys? Good. Uh, thank you for joining us. So, Mike, t- Michael, do you go by, you go by Michael, right? It's just Michael. Yeah, I do. I did that thing where you get to like a certain place in your life, like yeah. grad school, and yeah. I didn't want to be Mike anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I switched over. Now, every time I hear somebody call me Mike, I think they're from my hometown. Yeah. I've done, I've done this weird thing where I've on the internet, I go by Richard. And in real life, like with friends, I go by Rich. So like if I'm writing for a publication, like Rich Clark, it doesn't sound like a cool name, you know? So I just go by Richard Clark when I'm being published. But then otherwise it's Richard. Wait, yeah. Richard. I mix those up. Anyway, so, uh, you run a blog called Brainy Gamer and that's been going since the dawn of time. <laughs> yes. It since- seems like when I started getting into games again, Kind of like in my second wind of like, oh, games are cool. And everyone else was too, in terms of games criticism. You were, you were off and running. Yeah. I started it in 2007, which, yeah, I guess that is for, you know, game writing, especially critical game writing. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's pretty that's early. That's a big days. year. It's a 2000, was it 2008? That was the big year. There's one particular year, right? Where Portal and Braid and all that stuff started coming out. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, it all goes back to, you know, it's roughly around the time Bioshock and all those yeah. games came out. Yeah, Far Cry 2. Cool. So what made you want to start, like, writing about games in that way that you start? So your, your kind of um, MO, obviously, from Raymond Gamer is to, like, be really thoughtful about games. What made you want to start writing in that way, in particular, about games? Well, you know, I'm a college professor, and... um uh, you know, I just, t- to be honest, I just lost interest in writing about film, which is my, my, my scholarly background before that was writing about film. And it just, I don't know, it just seemed like it, the territory that you, you could cover in an academic setting became narrower and narrower, you know, like just to get anything published or to, to really explore anything, you had to really, the, the, the level of granularity of the, the kind of work just disturbed me. And I always felt like no one really was reading it, you know? Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. You're just giving papers to a room full of the, you know, six other people in the world who care about what you care about. It's just, it's that, it's the inside joke of academia, I think, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Um, that it, it's, you know, a lot of scholarship, particularly in the humanities is, uh, esoteric at yeah. best. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, um, I, I had a sabbatical and I was looking for a project and I had always been a gamer, um, going back, you know, to my childhood and, uh, just seemed like a convergence moment, you know, where just it, it, it was the moment to start thinking critically about games because there were games to think critically about. Yeah. Uh, and there was a small growing community of people, um, uh, who were writing about it. I certainly wasn't the first one on the scene. Uh, and I got some real nice encouragement from people like Lee Alexander, you know, just encouraging me to keep doing what I'd started to do. And, uh, you know, it, the audience just kind of grew out of, I think, our, all of us coming to this understanding that 
you can actually talk to developers and they're happy to talk with you. You can go to a conference and learn a lot. You can, I mean, it's a wide open door. Right. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not a closed society at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. So, um, one thing that we always want to talk about at the beginning of the show is, is our guests' uh, beliefs. So I wanted to ask you, like, what, what, how would you characterize, like, how you see the world and how you see, uh, you know, the concept of, God or spirituality or spirit, things like that. That's yeah, a big I, question, I know. That's a, that's a big question. This always happens uh, when I start to talk to people about this stuff. They don't know <laughs> where to start, but. I know. Isn't it funny though how we all become self-conscious when you ask that question? It's totally like, true. Yeah. Suddenly mm-hmm. you're like, oh, oh, I, okay. How do I say this the right way? You know? Mm-hmm. It, yep. Yeah. Um, so I, and it's funny. Well, we hope, I, we hope that, you know, uh, Part of the one or one of Rich and I's hopes for this podcast is that, like, through having these kind of conversations, that we just become like it becomes easier to talk about, you know? Yeah. Um, so, like, we, we at all, I mean, obviously we said this up front, but like, we at all, we in no way expect people to like think the same the way that we do, but we want to hear, you know, we want to hear from other people and, and learn to like listen to each other and, and uh, about that conversation. Cause I think when we talk about beliefs, it can easily become this thing where we clearly don't clearly aren't hearing each other if that makes right. sense yeah. right and there's a lot of that you yeah know, discourse plenty of it yeah well i you know hats off to you i think it's a great idea and i think yeah i i see a natural um connecting connecting points uh between sort of my uh spiritual sensibility sensibilities and games um hmm. uh about almost 20 years ago um a, a little more than 20 years ago i guess I became interested in um, Buddhism and um, Eastern religions and Taoism uh, and started exploring it. Um, I came from a very conservative Christian background, a non-denominational Christian church when I was a child um, in my very, I lived in a very small town in, in, in Indiana. Um, and uh, it was a pretty clamped down uh <laughs> place you know i mean it was there were a lot of people who probably wouldn't have felt very welcome there and others who i think felt very welcome there um but it was challenging to me when i got to college to sort of accept that particular brand of um extremely conservative christianity um and i sort of rejected it um and i kind of drifted for a while and um it seemed to me that uh, at a certain point in my life, I needed to think about spirituality because I was kind of, um, I'd gone through a divorce, uh, and I was reassessing kind of where I was, what I wanted to do with my life. And, uh, I, uh, picked up this book, uh, which was called Buddhism Plain and Simple. <laughs> and I just, something about it spoke to me. Um, so I began practicing and learning about meditation and, uh, I started doing retreats and, uh, since then I've visited like the San Francisco Zen Center and places like that and met people and taken time to have those kinds of, um, meditation retreats or just quiet retreats. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I've been, I, it's a tricky thing when you say Buddhism because it's not a religion. I mean, you you know that it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's considered a religion, but it isn't really. Um, so it, it seems to me to be more about a philosophical framework, um, within which to see the world. Uh, and it works for me. It speaks to me and it's, um, given me a 
way of, th- of thinking about games, which is, you know, kind of different, I think. Yeah. Um, it's that, a meditative process for me. Was that the fact that it's not a religion? Was that something that attracted you to, to it or? I think maybe. Yeah. I think, um, I think that the idea, the image of God that had been presented to me for so long was so, uh, constricting and kind of, um, um, it felt to me like I had no room for error, you know? Oh, yeah. Interesting. And, uh, and that if I did make a big mistake, you know, I could possibly be forgiven. But there's always just this horrifying, judging deity sort of watching your every move and um, fire and brimstone, you know? That, that was the, the the version of Christianity that I sort of grew up with. And Yeah. Sort of scared the crap out of me, to be honest. <laughs> so you, so yeah. you grew up just fearful. Yeah, I was very fearful, and uh, and I was also I never had any choice in the matter of going to church. I had I went because I my parents made me my my dad left when I was really young. I didn't really know him, but okay. my mom sort of made sure that I went, and I had an, uh, family members who made sure that I went, and that that was true all the way. I mean, I did I, did, I did go through a period where I, I tried to embrace it, and then. They kind of had me earmarked for seminary and, and, you know, when oh, I was wow. in high school, there was the thought that I was going to go to like a Bible college or something that, um, near me and a lot of pastors near me had gone there. And I, uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't manage that. I just, it didn't seem, and I got involved in theater. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you, so you never felt like you should go to seminary. It was people around you kind of pushing you into that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. I remember I went to visit um, a Bible college because my minister then I must have been like 15, mm-hmm. 14, 15 was really pushing me to go. And um, so I remember visiting there and, you know, I, I, I guess I must have given it some thought. I don't think I just, you know, dismissed it because I mean, he was very nice to me and that I just um, it never fit with me and never worked. And I think, I mean, I, it's very confessional, but I, you know, when you, you go through a divorce and you, you, yeah. you sort of your life is a wreck at a certain point, yeah. um, you start to really realize who your friends are and who the people mm-hmm. are that care about you. And absolutely, my yeah. God, those people, they bailed on me like, you know, uh, <laughs> they man. were, it yeah. was an ugly situation. And I was felt mm-hmm. very, very judged and very unaccepted. And I was like, fine, I'm, you know, you don't need me. I don't need you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, uh, it's so funny. I feel like this podcast is going to turn into like a comparison of, of lives every, like a, a personal narrative because last week, uh, Stu was on and he was talking about how the death of his dad, you know, impacted his belief in God. And, and I was able to relate to that and contrast a little. And in the same, I have the same situation. Like, I, uh, in this situation, like I, uh, I was divorced, uh, a couple years ago and, and you're right. Like everything you just said about it is true. You find out, you find out how your friends are. You find it kind of f- makes you feel like your life is is a total wreck in a in a way that I don't I don't know. It's pretty unique. Like if someone dies, it's definitely a different kind of pain and grief. When a marriage happens, it feels like you've you've screwed up your life. Yes. You know what yeah. I mean? Totally. Um, and you, so you have to like come to terms with that. And then everyone around you has to come to terms with that too. Right. Um, and so I was fortunate in that I was, I was surrounded by incredible friends and which obviously because they were associated with, with the church and my church, I was, it was able to strengthen me, strengthen my faith in particular. Um, but it did shake my 
belief in this idea that I was called to the ministry, right? So all of a sudden I was just like out, you know, in terms of ministry. I was so fed up with this idea of like being in front of people and leading people spiritually. Uh, it just didn't work for me. Um, which changed a little bit over the years, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how, how sort of in a way clarifying, I think divorce can be for all of us in terms of like, where our values are and where other people's values are around us, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So you ended up, um, with an interest in Buddhism and, and you were saying that that, that has an impact on how you see games. Tell us a little about that. Well, there's a simple way of understanding Buddhism, which is, and, and I don't think it's an inaccurate way, but that, you know, Buddhism is, you know, it's the old onion metaphor. It's just there's layers and layers and it gets very interesting and very, complex the deeper you go but the kind of the outer layer of it's pretty simple you just it's really about being very much in this moment very very aware of what you're doing very um in touch with your mind and and what's happening to you in that moment at all times you're very much present in the right now and um when you stray from that when your when your brain takes over and you know your typical whatever you're Whatever you're either gripping onto or trying to push away from yourself, either one of those two impulses can take over your mind and your, it's fear of whatever. It's worrying. It's planning. It's, you know, a fear. Uh, it's whatever takes over and you, you know, you construct this series of realities, which often are just the fears that you, th- of things you think might happen. Mm. Um, so what Buddhism really does is it encourages you to be very, very, zeroed in on this moment and i find that there's hardly anything i do in my life that isn't more that doesn't demonstrate that demonstrates that more than playing a video game hmm. that it's it, it, what it means to be absolutely zeroed in um there's a lot of language around this you know a lot of people call it being in the zone when they're playing a certain kind of game or uh, they're they blocked out the world or you know someone like when i you. play um Oh, I just, it just left me. Super hexagon. <laughs> Super hexagon. That's oh, what yeah. I was trying to think of. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Just, there's something uh, magic about that. I mean, or it's even not... like, I wrote an article about Hotline Miami one time where I talked about that, like where you're just so dialed in that, uh, and then you get to the end. Uh, this may be a, I may be taking you in a direction, but, um, <laughs> you know, you, you committed all this horrific violence at, at only because you were so like thoroughly dialed in because yeah. i mean i think that's kind of a demanding game in some ways but then yeah. there's that moment where it's over and you're just like there's just there's just there's release and you have to and you're forced to walk through all these corpses sorry that was really dark but, <laughs> but i just i just was making me think about how um you know different games that i've, I've felt like totally um zeroed in on you know yeah um but it, there's a really attractive even though that that game is very violent or whatever, there's a, a very there's a, a real lure to that sort of um, total focus, you know. Like if I could apply that to other areas of my life, how glorious would that be? Right. Yeah, yeah and I think it encourages you to pay attention to everything, the totality of that experience. And you know, I, I think game designers actually would feel very gratified to know that some players play their games in that way, where you really are taking in everything that you can see around you. You know, you're paying attention to the music, to the, you know, the textures of the things that are on the wall, to the mm-hmm. the feeling of the controller in your hand and how you forget it's there, you know? How does that uh, apply to, like, the things you're not... Like, especially when you play a video game, I'm just imagining a person, like, in that moment, um, 
taking it in, and then there's things around that that them, right? There's the, the room. There's maybe people in the room. There's other things happening. I mean, how do you think about the fact that you are almost ignoring those things? Yeah, I, I think you have to treat it like... They're not the same, so don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make this one-to-one analogy, but sure. it, it, you know, you don't go sit to meditate when you know your spouse is asking you to go to the grocery store and your <laughs> daughter's asking to play with you, and you're like, "No, sorry, leave me alone. I have to go meditate." Like, you yeah. have to find, you have to carve out those times, like early in the morning or whenever, that where you can be self-indulgent, and it you have to give yourself that gift of being self-indulgent, and and your practice requires you to spend time in that space and we you know, we live lives where you we feel guilty for taking this time to myself you know when there's so many other things i'm supposed to be doing yeah and um mm-hmm. but you absolutely must spend that time f- i mean what you're really doing is you're facing yourself you're facing yourself unflinchingly and you're facing to yourself is that what you're saying facing you facing, facing. Oh, okay sorry I'm yeah okay yeah, yeah. And and that's really interesting mind. that's really interesting because i feel like there's no way a lot of times there's ways to reconcile uh, different beliefs systems w- and say they share common things. And I think, I don't know, Drew, correct me if I'm wrong, but this doesn't feel com- compatible, <laughs> like with Christianity. There's a very, like, in Christianity, there's this idea of, of selflessness and this idea of Christ likeness is, is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's similar in the sense, though, that, um, I, I think like, um, like the Bible talks a lot about being sober minded. Um, and I think what, what it means by that, when that term is used, it's having a, in a sense, it's facing yourself, like Michael's talking about, like, um, acknowledging who you really are instead of who you think you are. Um, Hmm. you know what I mean? But I think with Christianity, you acknowledge who you are so that you realize how dependent you are, I guess, if that makes sense, like how much you need grace, if that makes sense. Yeah, and this the idea of interdependency is a huge part of Buddhism. That everything's connected. You know that you mm-hmm. you're not a free agent, and you. I mean, I think maybe the analogy between the two um, sort of practices would be prayer. Mm. I, I, you know, I mean, what was Jesus doing in the desert? Yeah. There was something very. It seems to me very probing, very mentally strenuous, very meditative about you know him facing all of these voices in his head or from wherever they were coming and he had to address them and he had to, he had to be there. He couldn't run from them. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That was a, that was a functional Mm -hmm. purposeful thing. So when you're meditating, are you thinking about, you're thinking about a host of different things in your life and different people? Or are you trying to zero in on? No, I'm, I'm zeroed in on my breathing. Okay. Oh, interesting. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. I'm just, and I'm noticing whatever comes up. So, you know, I hear, I feel a fresh breeze. I notice it. I say, oh, that's a fresh breeze. Back to my breathing. Huh. Or, uh, you know, I'll be like, oh, I've got a paper I'm working on. I got to get that submitted by next week. Oh, there goes my planning mind. Back <laughs> <to> my <breathing." laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and you see, so you get to catalog these things and you find that your brain does a real good job of, of pushing you away from certain things and, gripping on to other things that really can preoccupy you and you just mm-hmm. have to in a very non-judgmental way say oh i see what i'm doing i'm you know there's a worry there's a fear there's a clinging there's a longing whatever catalog it back to your breathing huh and you can get to a place where it's just very quiet and very still and that's when i don't know you're in a certain place that's um very restorative yeah yeah, yeah this I'm, i can 
Oh, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say. I think it's inter- That's interesting. It's interesting to hear your take because, um, you know, I, I I've been in like full time ministry and I've I've you know been around obviously Christians a lot. Um, and I think a lot of Christians are really fearful, or maybe maybe that's the right word. Cause sort of like very concerned about like Buddhist meditation or whatever, mm-hmm. um, because. They, they would make the argument that like the Bible calls us to, when we meditate, instead of to like empty ourselves of ourself, of, of, of thoughts of, or worries or whatever instead, to fill, fill our mind with truth instead, if that makes sense. Um, but the way you talk about it seems like, like just a really healthy, <laughs> like a really healthy human practice to like take time to just like un, unpack those worries and, and, and the things that cause us anxiety. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I and it's not the purpose of it is not to then say, oh look, now I have an empty mind, you know, good for me. It's to make space for the natural human compassion mm. and mm-hmm. sort of love for the world to um, fill that space, and that's what happens, you know. Yeah. The things that you're yeah. afraid of, or that you're worried about, or the things that make you angry. Once you just look at them and sort of face them down, and it can be very difficult. I mean, your brain is a powerful. <laughs> Really mm-hmm. very gnarly place to be sometimes. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you emerge from that and you feel this very um, earnest sense of um, now I'm ready to do my work and my work should be for the betterment of, of all humankind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess I, I, uh, not, I don't want to be a contrarian the whole time. I'm not trying to be, I promise. But um, one thing that strikes me is just that for Christians – there's an, there's, I feel like there's always got to be an other, cent, other centeredness, right? Like there's got to be either a focus on other people, uh, or usually other people and God or just God. Um, for me, that's, that's what prayer is about. That's what even meditation is about. If I'm meditating, like s- some Christians have a practice and I do too of meditating on a partic- particular scripture, um, or a particular verse or idea about God and those, you know, in those situations, I'm certainly not trying to, to direct myself, uh, back to myself. I'm just, I'm trying to focus on a truth or an idea that's gonna direct me uh, accordingly. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, it's interesting because I think Drew's right that meditation isn't all that scary. I think the question is like what you're meditating on. And then that would be, be determined, obviously, by what you believe in, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about Buddhism, it's full of all these paradoxes, of course. And one of them is, you know, the minute you meditate for a purpose, you're not doing it right. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're trying to get something out of it, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, hmm. It's not going to work. Huh. Cool. Uh, that's interesting. So, let's talk about games. <laughs> 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 this is this is the best transition we've had. Today. Now that we've solved all the mysteries, <laughs> we've established that we're not the same at all. Let's, let's talk about well, shooting aliens now. <laughs> I, I fear I've you know if anyone who may have even slightly been leaning towards thinking about Buddhism has now been turned off it for <laughs> for good. No way. I, I no. mean, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's up to the individual, right? Yeah, yeah. This I mean, is yeah. how this thing works. Yeah, it's not an evangelical <laughs> thing. I, I have no, and that, that's probably another big, you know, distinction is that it's the, the imperative to go into the world and, yeah, and people, you know, mm-hmm. together into your, into the fold, if you will, is not part of the 
it's not a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty big difference for sure. Um, cool. So let's start by talking about my topic, which I wanted to talk about nuclear throne. I had an article go up just this week, um, called moments of peace and nuclear throne. So this is relevant, I think, to our conversation a little bit. Nuclear throne is definitely a game where you find yourself sort of in the zone. Um, so you're, you're focused on that game when you're playing it, right? Um, have it, have either of y'all played this game? I played it for maybe 15 or 20 minutes at GDC, but okay. uh, but I haven't, I don't own it. I, I haven't uh, bought the, I guess it's still like in beta technically, right? Uh, yeah, technically. Yes. It's yeah. early access on Steam right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I oh, played yeah. it today when you mentioned it to me. I played it for about, I'd say maybe 30 or 40 minutes. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So I, one thing I was going to mention is that both of y'all seem to have had whether or not you played it a lot, you've had pretty lengthy play section sessions with it. Like that game starts and is over for me at least within at least, I mean, five minutes is a pretty long game. For <laughs> me. Um, so you guys probably must have played it a few th- times through, um, and gotten a good sense of like what it, what the rhythms are like. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I may be overshooting because, you know, it's at GDC and when you're at a party playing yeah, a game, like, it feels a lot longer than it really is probably. Um, cause you're like, there's just other people there and you're thinking about a million different things. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I think I got a sense of it. Um, it's, it's a roguelike shooter, right? Like kind of yeah. sim- similar to Hotline Miami in that it's top down. Yeah. Definitely. And what struck me about this game in particular is that it does feel at this, when you first start it, it feels like angry, right? Like it feels like you are. Yeah. You are on a tear. <laughs> you're, you're yeah. shooting everything that's there. Uh-huh. The game opens up with you basically in the middle of a cl- crowd of enemies and you just have to survive. Like, and, uh, one thing that strikes me about this game is just how ugly survival is. Like you just have to take out everything. You have, there's a lot of leftover sort of, junk once you're done uh it's kind of like a hotline miami vibe in that way except that they're aliens and stuff and the game doesn't care about making you feel bad about it um which is fine um but uh one thing that struck me in particular is that i'd read this article about uh luftrausers which is another game that vlambeer who made this game also made um and in that article they were talking about how Luftrausers. Am I saying that right? Luftrausers? Luftrausers. Luftrausers. So they made that game sort of in the midst of this time where they were very, they were very angry. And so as a result, the game Luftrausers is super angry, especially compared to their other games. So, um, this is the quote I want to read, um, by the developer. He says, the games that, Vlambeer make feel comfortable to me. They're games that allow you to get better. They're simple and straightforward, but new and novel. They're friendly, even though they can be dystopian and difficult. You know, you're just jumping around grabbing a crate and shooting some monsters with a bazooka. You're flinging fish into the air and shooting them with a bazooka. You're running around the wastelands trying to shoot giant scorpion, scorpions with a bazooka. So he describes <laughs> those three, those three as examples of like, um, less angry games. Um, and I think it's funny because, uh, it kind of makes sense when you read on like the idea of loose rousers is that there's, there's not a lot of backing down. You, when you are done shooting enemies in lift rousers, your goal is to keep shooting enemies. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
um, it doesn't really reward taking a step back, in other words. So you're literally going on this, like, anger-driven rampage. Um, and I was really fascinated by that because when you talk about gameplay in that way, it's like this very emotive, personal experience to play the game or to think about the game or even especially to design the game, right? Um, that's what Rami Ismail is talking about, is he's talking about how this was a result of their emotional uh, place. So, I don't know. Did you guys play uh, Lift Rousers? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so, I played quite a bit. Did it did the, did it come across as like angry? Yeah, I mean it's it's kill or be killed. Yeah. Right? So, uh both of those games and and your amount of survival time, you know, is just dependent on how I mean like you say you got to be in the zone. There's a it's it's very much I mean it, it goes back to Robotron, you know? Yeah. You, mm-hmm. It's that I mean that's exactly it's it's a multi-directional shooter. You've got all these things coming at you and you've got to stay alive as long as you can until you die and yeah. death is inevitable. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So both games, I mean, they're obviously into that, yeah. but yeah, I, I, I mean, it felt to me like, um, nuclear throne is an angrier game in this it, because there's a more of a human face on it that, mm-hmm. you know, there's characters, there's an art style there. Um, even the, the graphics for the game are, you know, you're kind of like this melting, you know, sort of magma kind of looking like radioactive. Yeah. You know, the other mm-hmm. one's more of a obviously a World War Two kind of thing, but right. But there is like a an end, right, to nuclear throne. I mean, you can you well, can you can ascend the nuclear throne, as it were. I guess theoretically, though, I've never really made it through like okay. even twenty percent of the game. Uh, and the the nuclear throne was just added like two weeks ago or something, like oh, maybe okay. a month ago. The ending was actually added. Uh, so I don't know what would have happened if you made it that far before, but you wouldn't have reached the quote unquote ending. And it's always felt to me like a game that typically isn't meant to end. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. What struck me was that like the, the game has these moments where like really what you're fighting for is kind of a release, a, a rest. Um, there are moments where you, you fight and you fight and you fight and then the stage is just completely almost completely clear and there's like one maggot left and you just kind of get to hang out and grab things and you know th- there's this weird mechanic where when you kill the last enemy you're sucked into this portal like instantly we don't really have a choice <laughs> mm-hmm. um and so you start like strategizing ways to keep that from happening and so i feel like i don't know if it's intentional or not but i feel like the game poses puts itself in puts you in a situation where you're actively trying to seek out this moment of like where everything stops and you just kind of get the there's this great like soundtrack especially in the first level where there's like this harmonica and wind blowing and stuff and it's just kind of a very peaceful moment so that was cool yeah yeah i think there's something in terms of the pacing and the rhythm of a game like that a roguelike just sort of by its definition is you know procedurally generated levels that are brutal brutal and your you know death is always around the corner and your your progress is so incremental you're just clawing your way just bit by bit you know hoping you can get you know learn from what you why you died and and those little moments of respite must be i don't know you would you would cherish them more they'd feel like fresher air than in another game where there's just a transition you know exactly yeah mm-hmm. absolutely that's that's one of the reasons i wanted to write about that in particular is because nuclear throne seems 
It's not like Drew actually challenged me on this in the editing. He was like, "It's not a game about peace," and I was like, "Okay, <laughs> you're right." Because I always, I like, I have this habit of like, whenever I get something from a game, I'm like that's what the game's about. <laughs> and clearly, Nuclear Throne is not. It's called Nuclear Throne. It's not about peace, but the, it it conveys peace in a really interesting way. And so, one reason I wanted to write about that was just because it it causes you to seek that out. It causes you to see that as this really or to see that moment as valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way that, like, you know, uh, Nathan Drake stumbles onto a beautiful sunset in the middle of his game. Like, that game, that's not a reward. That's like a ho-hum, get me past this. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, and I was even thinking about, like, we were talking a lot about Hotline Miami, and I think there's a lot of comparisons to this game, but, like, the moment of peace, you know when it's coming, essentially. In Hotline in, in Miami. In Hotline Miami. But yeah. it seems like a nuclear throne, you have to, like maybe it's more valuable in a sense because you have to take note of it. Like you have to, um, you know, kind of deliberately notice that, oh man, there's just one enemy left. This is a moment to sort of like collect myself and yeah, yeah. Pro- process what's, what's taken place. And, yeah. Michael, do you think, do you think it's possible for games to make us like Luftrausers in particular? Like, is that a game that's so angry that it's going to make us, uh, angry by playing, or has that potential to? Do you think? Yeah, it's hard to say whether the gameplay and the difficulty of that, the sort of high degree of difficulty of of a game, irrespective of the narrative or you know the, the presentation or the setting, yeah. what, what is it that makes you mad? In other words, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah. Um, is it the frustration of having to just fight off death and losing that battle a lot? <laughs> Well, how much, I mean, how much of what you were sensing was sort of disconnected from the mechanics of the game and more just about kind of the, I don't know, the stylistic elements of the game? Is it, did any of that contribute? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think all of that, like, I think the mechanics are kind of, it's, especially in the, in Luftrausers, like, the mechanics are kind of perfectly aligned with the aesthetic. I felt like the, the musical kind of stomping, marching thing and this kind of droning, falling airplane sound that were in that game uh causes you to kind of i don't know it didn't cause me to get angry but it certainly caused me to think about the concept of anger i mean that's i asked that question as as a way of starting the discussion i don't think i don't think these games really i certainly they have the potential to make us all sorts of things but i yeah. think in, they also uh from we have the people, potential to respond to them exactly way, yeah. humans sure. have an equal potential yeah. to like <laughs> be conscious of those things and uh and res- and just think through them so um let's did you play on. can i uh, d- is it yes. okay did you play valiant hearts i did not i don't think Which i really i really want to that's the world war one game yeah right oh, yeah i want to play that yeah, it's it's using their you know their Rayman engine, uh, mm-hmm. Child of Light engine to, yep. uh, yeah. I I bring it up. I don't mean I want to dampen your enthusiasm for wanting to play it, but I I, I played it. Uh, I didn't finish it, but um, that to me is a great example where what you're talking about there's a, there's a significant disconnect that mm. the world of the game and the and the the way that they depict it and the story they're trying to tell, which is very very historical, and they did their research and they keep touting how much research they did, and I believe them. <laughs> yeah. But then you know you're just. <clears throat> I gotta go find this and put it with this and then mix that with this and then get me to here and then I shoot that. It's, it's a, it's a puzzler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not, I just can't figure out what, what does that tell me about living through the experience of World War One? 
Right. Yeah. I've, I've listened to a couple podcasts talking about it. This will be another one, (laughs) but, um, it's funny because I think the more I listened, the more I thought, well, I feel like I get what this is and, and I don't really need to do it. It sounded like what people were most impressed by were like the fact that the hidden objects were meaningful in some way, but it sounds mm -hmm. like they're meaningful, like in a way that has little to do with the game. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 the kind of mayhem you're describing in the game you're talking about is just so it seems more apropos in a way that if you could figure out how to sort of harness that Absolutely, and then yeah. and can and hold and hold on to those other elements that they've that they've you know developed that yeah. would be interesting yeah definitely mm-hmm. yeah. um drew you've played destiny yes um so let's talk about destiny destiny um the, the beta, okay. right? <laughs> yeah yeah this is the the beta's out i think the the full game's coming out in just maybe a few weeks uh-huh. um but uh so it's weird cuz i don't know how much is really going to change i feel like i'm probably just playing destiny <laughs> even though it's the beta technically um what do you I'm, mean by that what is well, that i'm mean? just saying like i don't think a lot's going to change in oh, okay. a few, in a few weeks yeah. um so i was just making a crack at destiny for whatever reason um <laughs> but it's weird i like i'm not the kind of person like i write about games and i i but i'm not the kind of person that ever like gets on Facebook or Twitter, really, to say, like, oh, man, this game is great. But for some reason, I did that with Destiny. Um, yeah. And I was like, man, I'm really enjoying this um, more than I thought I would. Yeah. Uh, it's incredibly beautiful. Um, it's kind of like probably the first game I've played on my PlayStation 4 that I thought, like, okay, this this is pretty cool. Like, this is pretty impressive um, graphically and, and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, the, the way they've depicted kind of um, you know, a, a post-apocalyptic Russia is pretty, pretty great. Um, and the feel of the first few levels is pretty, um, pretty impressive. Just, just this feel of like you don't know where you are. There's this uh, a tremendous amount of mystery about the story of why you're there and why you have to fight these, you know, the fallen or whatever they are. Yeah. Um, but all that to say, like all that wore off pretty quickly. <laughs> um. <laughs> So I, I got excited and talked about how great it was, and then now I feel like it sort of just evolved into a, 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 another mindless shooter. Um, huh. Yeah, so, that's funny because when I when I was reading about it and hearing about it, it sounds a lot like if Halo was Borderlands. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, I I I mean I'm I want to play it some more and I, I want to give it some more time. Yeah, but um, but that's kind of how I felt last night. Anyway, playing as I was just like, oh, this is this is like Borderlands, but with Halo mechanics. Hmm. Um, and, and, and more numbers, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know how much damage your guns do now. And, yeah. and when you shoot aliens, numbers pop out of their heads <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to yeah. tell you how much damage you did. Which so anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I wanted to get you guys' thoughts on a couple of things, but, um, so I kind of got depressed because I was thinking about how, like, a, a little bit depressed about it last night. Um, because I was just thinking about how this is pretty, like the scale of this game is pretty incredible and the feel of the game initially anyway that, uh, you know, I think some of the greatest moments in games are those, the, that first moment, like, like in Skyrim, the first time you play Skyrim and you're just like, whoa, this is a huge world and I just want to see it all and like take it all in and, and, and man, they designed yeah. those, the s- snow effects so beautifully mm-hmm. and you just want to go and like, frolic in in the landscape um and so i totally had that feeling with this game 
Um, but then, uh, you know, that fades pretty quickly and you're just mindlessly running around shooting things. So my question is, is like, um, you know, when are we going to see, and, and, and is this going to happen? When are we going to see the kind of assets that were devoted to a game like Destiny devoted to something that's not so destructive? Does that make sense? I'm curious mm-hmm. if that's on the horizon. I guess we kind of talked about that in the last podcast with Stu, but, um, you know, when we talked about VR and that possibly being, you know, a means of seeing more assets devoted to less destructive games. But yeah. um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You know, uh, there was a time when um, we were still so uh, transfixed by graphics and what what it was like to be in a world. I, I just remember GTA San Andreas uh, is a great example, and that, that 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 little series of GTA games around three, where you were just like, oh my god, I can do this and I can do that and I can run around here and it's this big, and that that time that time passed. It seems to me mm. that. Um, yeah. So you put it, sandbox worlds now, which is I think where everybody thought five years ago was the sort of future of games and turn the player loose, create your own narrative. When you think about it like GTA five, watchdogs, you know, they kind of came and people were like, Oh, yeah. And then they moved on. Like it, it's amazing how little splash they made. Yeah. But when you talk to people from GDC, or especially from E3 who saw uh, No Man's Sky, there was a whole different take on it and i think part of it was gets at what you're asking that you create these sandbox worlds where you just give people these really cool ways of being destructive mm-hmm. um and 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 they're very very realistic sort of super amazingly cool like graphically realistic or stylized slightly but still realistic and that game really goes in another direction it you know yeah it's yeah. not everything hasn't been built by designers you know so that when you walk in it looks exactly like this it's procedurally generated. It appears that you can wander around, do sort of all kinds of interesting things. Um, and uh, people were genuinely excited about that game. I mean, like, way excited. Yeah. Who saw it? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, and, th- and they were saying, right, that, that in No Man's Sky, there's, it's hard to find people to shoot, right? Isn't that right? What they were saying about it? Yeah, I mean it's I it, it's hard to say exactly what the final game is going to look like cuz they yeah. they know more than they say but but I mean what they're suggesting is that um a lot of the the fun of it will be just exploring and that that exp- process of exploration is really kind of like the old school version of exploration like mm-hmm. Magellan exploration <laughs> like Christopher mm-hmm. Columbus where you're 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 discovering things and then it'll say you know you discovered this. Yeah. And the 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 universe has other people in it and you're among them. So yeah. because the game is infinite, w- the drive to keep playing it may not necessarily be find the next boss or level up to this, but more just like, what haven't I seen? Where haven't I gone? So-and-so yeah. says to go here, I'm going to go there and see what it's like. That's a mm-hmm. different approach. You know, it's funny that you brought that game up because when you were, you're getting ready to give this contrast to this other game, I kind of assumed you were going to bring up Gone Home. Which is a game with a lot, a lot of, a lot smaller, you know, uh, scope. Um, it's just a house and you don't shoot or do anything <laughs> really. You can just pick things up. Um, and I think for me, like those two, like Minecraft is a game that's done what No Man's Sky has done, right? Um, mm-hmm. and obviously that was relatively popular. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And I think part of the reason that was popular is because 
people are fascinated by things if you give them the option to be, right? Like, by just small, mundane things, people, people enjoy exploring minute details. People enjoy taking in beautiful things, right? Um, if they're not forced to, like, shoot at a monster that's in front of the beautiful thing. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But with just enough risk, there's, there's some survival element. Mm, there's yeah. some, you know, you could die, you could, and, you know, No Man's Sky has that too. It's not just, it's not, uh, uh, Proteus, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Cool. Well, uh, um, let's move on to Earthbound. Uh, Michael, you've been playing Earthbound. Tell us about it. Yeah, I, oh, I'm just in the throes of it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love this game. It's, it's so, ah, I think part of the reason. <laughs> you like you know, it, I guess. That's articulate. Um, I, I, the reason I started playing it was simple. I, I was thinking about assigning it to my students in this, um, art and history of games course that I teach in the fall and, uh, seminar sort of course. And I hadn't played it for a while, actually in many years. So I thought, oh, I probably should take a look at it. And, and I haven't stopped playing it. Um, huh. You know, it's funny. I've been looking back at the original response to it. I remember well when it came out. Um, I remember buying it actually. I even remember going in and buying it, like bringing it home. And, um, people at the time didn't like it much. Hmm. Um, and I remember one, one reaction. And I know a friend of mine had this. He's like, this is the best they can do. Like, this is as good as it can look. Like, this is a super Nintendo entertainment system. Like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, it, it, they, it doesn't push the hardware very, very much, uh, visually. It's graphically sort of purposefully abstract in this kind of beautiful way. Um, but it's, it's, there's certain things I think that about the game that are, um, notable. One is this kind of crazy balance between just wacky, offbeat, you know, the writing is just exquisite. It's funny, laugh out loud funny. There are times when you're just thinking like, what did he say? You know, and then, um, but then there's this beautiful, soft kind of, um, melancholy about it too. Mm-hmm. And it's an, it's an undercurrent that you start to experience about mm, an hour and a half, two hours into the game. And it, it's brilliant the way it maintains both of those, um, styles and both of those tones. Um, and then it sustains them. So. You keep meeting these really interesting characters and these crazy predicaments, but it never feels forced. It never feels like offbeat for the sake of offbeat. Everything actually does go together. Um, and you know, you, you just, there are times when you remember what it was like to be a little kid. Um, and yeah. you know, Ness, he's a little boy and yeah. that actually matters a lot in the game. He's a little boy and his friends are young kids and the world is, is presented through that perspective. And, you know, there, actually, if you think about it, there really aren't very many games that are told from the perspective of, of a child. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Seems like there's a lot that sort of like, um, are not told, but sort of like exploit that viewpoint yeah. rather than like tell, tell a story from that viewpoint, you know? Yeah. I, I, I like Animal Crossing. Um, it's obviously pitched at a, at a kids. Pokemon is, even though mm-hmm. adults play it, you know, all these games, uh, Tomodachi Life, those, these yeah. are games that are pitched at kids. And, but that's, they don't really have a, ch- a childlike sensibility at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, this does. And, um, it's, uh, they, they find beautiful ways of, uh, incorporating something meaningful into what would have just been an, a regular old Dragon Quest RPG mechanic. 
So, you know, just from the yeah. littlest thing, like to save the game, you call your dad. Yeah, I was, I, we, I, oh, we, were, ta- cool. we were talking earlier about how, um, there was a guy who wrote an article for Game Church about Earthbound. It's called Earthbound and the Virtuous Uses of Nostalgia for you thousands of listeners who want to look that article up. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, it was interesting that the guy who wrote it talked about how homesickness is a, is a game mechanic in, in, uh, in Earthbound. Yep. So like, I guess like, like you said, you call your dad to save the game. Um, yeah. but he said like you, you're, the main character will like miss a turn occasionally yeah. in, in battle because he's homesick. I, yeah. There, you'll, you'll, you'll see this thing like instead of just an RPG thing, you missed, you know? Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, Ness was thinking about his mom and missing her. Oh man, that's amazing. It is. I need to play this game. Is it out on anything? What's it out on? So that's the good news. If you have a Wii U, uh, ah. it's now on the virtual console and you can play it on the little separate gamepad screen. It works beautifully on there. Man, I need um, a Wii U, I guess. I will say if you've ever, you know, I own the game, so I feel no guilt about this. I found the ROM <laughs> and right. I'm playing in an SNES emulator. And the, the cool thing about that is I'm screenshotting it a lot because I'm yeah. going to write a piece about it, and that's super easy. And then also you can save your state at any point. And for me, I want to see certain things again. Um, you know, if I'll miss a piece of dialogue, I'll just load, load it back up and see it again just for myself. Hmm. I yeah. would really recommend that, but make sure you own the game. But don't. It's totally not cool to go download a ROM if you don't own the game. Yeah, I have to like go hunt flea markets so I can find the game and then get the ROM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So, yeah, that's interesting. I feel like a lot of... uh. I feel like a lot of, uh, games f- about kids, even, even games that are about childhood are as much about play acting to be adults. Like, Legend of Zelda is like a classic example. Like, that's a kid who should be, he's a kid, right? And he yeah. should, he should be just like being a kid, but he's like off doing grown up things in grown up ways. And Earthbound seems like it's more of like on the, on its face about childhood and, and the struggles that come with that, which is interesting. Yeah, it w- from the sensibilities of you know Itoi, the the, the creator, I and mean, he very much is the 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 um, auteur of this mm-hmm. game. It's very much filtered through his his own unique perspective on things, and it's it's you know a lot of pop culture stuff. A lot, I you know he likes the Beatles. You can tell uh, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I'll say about Zelda though is I think Wind Waker does. A very good job of, of presenting that game through the eyes of a child that I think okay. his, he's, he's, he's the youngest, uh, link in that game and he's in any of the, of the Zelda games, I think. Yeah. He's just, I don't know. There's something about the way the world looks that, that, um, animated yeah. cartoonish style, I think is a reflection of how he experiences and sees the world. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. I was making me think about, um, I recently, with some other like game church writers, we recently went back and played through. We actually haven't finished it. I'm not sure we will, but we went back and played through Chrono Trigger. Um, and that was a game that I played a lot as a kid. But it's interesting that the contrast because Chrono Trigger is kind of like about this band of like teens, I guess. I think most of the characters in it are probably like teenagers, but they're all teenagers that sort of like, they don't, they sort of, they leave home and then they don't really think about it much again, except for the fact that they need to save the world for some reason. But they don't really think <laughs> about their parents or their home life. And actually, a lot of their home lives are kind of broken. It's kind of sad if you think about it, really. But um 
anyway, this is interesting to hear a, a game like this where it's clearly like um, the main character like is a kid who loves his parents. <laughs> like I don't know, there's just something really um, simple and beautiful about that to me. Yeah, and and they don't necessarily love him back. Oh man, now I want to play it even more. Wow. Yeah. I mean, his mom, when you call her and talk to her, she's like, okay, yeah, oh, you're doing a great job. Oh, sorry, I got to go. I got to go do this thing. And of course, when you're with her, she's very sweet. So it's, you know, she's just a busy mom. But I think the reason she's busy is because she apparently is a single mom because you never see the dad and the dad's just, your only connection to him is by the phone. That's how I grew up. You know, the only way I had of ever connecting with my dad was on the phone occasionally. And Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the game gets that just so right, you know. All yeah. he's good for for Ness is giving him money. Mm. Huh. I might have to get a Wii U now just to play it in a good environment. Cool. Well, thanks, Michael, for being on this podcast. Yeah, I want to. I, I want to say a special thank you to Michael because I honestly think, like, I'm not sure Game Church would really exist. Like, that may be like a. a I may be overshooting and saying that, but in a lot of ways, I think that's true. I'm not sure Game Church would exist if it weren't for guys like you, Michael, because, um, you know, you kind of, I don't know, for me, like your podcast and Brainy Gamer became a place where I discovered like this whole other world of games criticism. I know you weren't the only one doing that, but, um, I just, I just want to say thank you for that because, um, I, I love what you've done at Brainy Gamer and what you did with the podcast, um, which you should do more of. <laughs> no, but uh but you know, thank you for for um, you know, showing uh ho- or helping I think curate in a lot of ways some really great um game criticism that I didn't know existed. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Um uh, the podcast is coming back, so Oh, sweet. I'm going to have Yay. a co-host. Scoop. And, uh, yeah, scoop. it's I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. And I've I've been writing again. I got my first post out from my, I was on leave doing a sabbatical, but I'm back and I've got another one in the about rate of post. So I'm going to be back regular writing again too. Nice. Well, that's exciting. So, uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening to the game church podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, and especially on iTunes, which we're now on iTunes. So you can do that now. Uh, you can go there and you can rate and review us. And, uh, if you all do it at once, then, Apple will smile upon us and it will make a, make us shoot up the charts. I think that's how it works. We're interested in like getting questions, specific questions from people or suggestions for topics and things like that. So feel free to send stuff there. Thanks everybody. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>